Welcome. We're very, very glad y'all are here. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, um, looking for a church home, if you're visiting maybe with your mom, if you're visiting as part of the baby dedication, um, our hope this morning is that you would hear from the Lord. And so we hope that you're blessed, we hope you're encouraged, we hope you're edified, and we believe that the best way to do that is to go to, the, to, to God's Word. And, um, and so that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So y'all pray with me, and then we'll get to it. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you specifically this morning for all of the mothers in this room and all of those who have had mothers in this room. We're, we're a blessed bunch, and your design for the family to be healthy and to be what builds up healthy churches, which are the long arm of evangelism. Um, on this day that uh, we've kind of set aside for, for moms, we, we praise uh, you for how wonderfully um, your, des- your design has been given to us. And so we, we love you for that, Lord, and we, we thank you for our moms. We pray um, today that uh, we would glean wisdom um, uh, from the word in how to walk in, in every manner of life. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for um, the blessing of the word. I pray that as we open the word that we would not be um, distracted, that we would not take lightly the reality that what we're holding is breathed out by God, that we would not take for granted that if not for the spirit, we would have no understanding at all. We are indeed a blessed bunch this morning. Lord, I'd like to pray uh, for Trent Brown, pastor in Caddo Mills. Pray that you would bless them this morning. Help them to enjoy you. Help him to be um, walking uh, well with Natalie and that they are living together in an understanding way that their prayers would not be hindered. I'm thankful for the example that he sets to so many students and then to his church. And I pray that you would bless their ministry. Lord, we pray for our city. Ultimately, we pray for a city government. We pray for details that would all come together to, um, to bless people. And ultimately, as believers, our hope is that the gospel would go forward in such an environment. Lord, this morning, as we talk about wisdom, we pray that you would bless us with it. We, we are well aware before we begin, as James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let us ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will will be given. We praise you for that ahead of time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, welcome and happy Mother's Day. Turn with me to Proverbs 31. Turn with me to Proverbs 31. I'll let everyone get there. Proverbs 31 is the most perfect chapter for a Mother's Day sermon. It doesn't get any better than that. If you'll look just to the right on the next page, that's Ecclesiastes, and that's where we're going to be today, and that's where we're going to be next week as well. The book of meaninglessness and vanity. While it's not quite the home run guarantee for a Mother's Day sermon, I I do believe that it holds uh, much in the way of encouragement and in wisdom. And our hope this morning, as we do the work of walking through a difficult book, um, is that you would be edified and encouraged and built up. I thought about titling today's sermon, Mother's Day is Meaningless, 
But I decided against it because it kind of puts forward a message that we don't want to put forward even though we will be talking about much meaninglessness this morning. But if we're honest, if we're honest, I believe everyone in this room, maybe mothers especially, can relate to thoughts like, what is the point? I believe that if we're honest, most of us sitting here can relate to thoughts like, why are we doing what we do every day? Does it really matter? Is there a point in all of this effort that we're putting forward all the time? On that Tuesday afternoon when you've changed your eighth diaper or you've spilled your second cup of coffee or you had to leave work early to pick up a sick child, is it possible to find eternal value even in those moments? Look at Ecclesiastes 1 with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Then if you skip down to verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Uh, Many believe Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. I tend to think it probably was. Maybe, maybe not. But what we're certain of is it's the name of the person who is addressing us in Ecclesiastes is Coleth, or the teacher. And so I'll refer to them as the teacher for the rest of the morning. Ecclesiastes is considered wisdom literature. And like all other books in the Bible, it really only makes sense within the entire canon of Scripture. Read by itself without taking into account all that God has revealed throughout his breathed out word we could be left confused and draw some flat-out wrong conclusions. Ecclesiastes is written in such a manner that I actually feel it necessary up front here at the beginning, hoping that maybe you'll read through Ecclesiastes some this week in preparation for next week's message and maybe spend some time in it as families and small groups. I want to give a warning that if you read it the wrong way, you could really misunderstand what's being communicated. It, it, It merits a bit of a warning. It merits an extra measure of attention. I would in fact offer that if read inappropriately, Ecclesiastes could lead you to become a fool and a sluggard, never making the most of opportunities before you, never seeing the purpose of goals and diligence, and never eager to face the things in life that you are supposed to face as a child of God. So we have to be careful. In our wisdom books, um, success is is a topic that is often discussed. Consider already what the king has said he's trying to figure out in chapter 1. He says, I wanted to apply wisdom and I wanted to apply understanding to see everything that, that man does under the sun. He's trying to make sense of it and he wants to be very wise in it because success is a significant topic in all of our wisdom literature. Because ultimately, it's impossible to have true success without wisdom. It's impossible to have true success without wisdom. And Ecclesiastes takes a very somber approach. Already, those opening verses that I read, you, you kind of maybe sat slumped in your chair a little bit, bit of a downer. Thanks for that. Everything is meaningless. That's very encouraging. Way to, way to kick off the morning with a bang. 
but it takes a somber approach in questions regarding life and regarding success and regarding wisdom. Before we climb even further into the text, to help us wrap our heads around what we'll engage today, I think it's actually helpful to, to consider a few other pieces of wisdom literature. It's not the norm here that on a Sunday morning we dive right into the wisdom books. And so let us consider a few of the other wisdom books to, to better understand Ecclesiastes. What I mean is this. If the book of Proverbs is about wisdom for people who want success. If you've ever read through Proverbs, you see, do this and this will happen. If you move in this manner, this will occur. It's a, it's a book for people who desire success. So if Proverbs is a book of wisdom for people who want success, Ecclesiastes, what we're engaging this morning, is in fact a book for people who have achieved what they thought was success, but they were still found wanting. They were still a bit empty. They weren't as fulfilled as they thought they might be after achieving what they perceived as success. If Job, another wisdom book, if Job learned about vanity by losing it all, the teacher in Ecclesiastes saw vanity by having it all. That gives us a little perspective on where we're going. The teacher's basic message is meaninglessness. Meaninglessness and vanity, that word occurs 35 times in this short book, and you'll probably hear it at least that many times this morning. It indicates something that is vapor-like. In the opening verses that we've already read, that everything is meaningless. So you may be wondering, if we do a word study, some in-depth Hebrews, go get your neat books that show the original language, what actually does everything mean? What does, what does, all, what does he mean by all? And after doing the very academic work of that study, it means all. It means everything. It means exactly what it says, and we'll find that he means it throughout the book. So for the sake of structure and understanding, rather than just diving into a big mess of meaninglessness this morning, we're going to categorize our meaninglessness to better understand what we're engaging in Ecclesiastes. So what I want you to do at this point, if you're taking notes, if you're not taking notes, I encourage you to become a note taker. It helps you to remember things. But if you're taking notes, start writing these things down. The first thing there's three categories we're going to consider. Obvious things that are meaningless, questionable things that are meaningless, and good things that are meaningless. So make a list so that we'll be able to have a real good idea of what exactly is meaningless before the end of the morning so that you can be rightly encouraged. First, obvious things are meaningless. These are actually the things that we would probably not disagree with. As we engage a few of them, these are the things we would most likely say, yes, I agree, that is meaningless. The first one is found in 5.7. Now, at this point, you need to get your Bible drill hat on, because we're going to be turning back and forth within Ecclesiastes. So, swords prepared, and let's do this. Look at 5.7. Consider what's meaningless in this verse. It says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. The one who has no action behind the dreams that he has, the one who has no movement behind the, the, wor behind the words that he speaks, that is meaningless and vanity. Look at 6, 9, chapter 6, verse 9. Next page over. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. That insatiable 
roving, continually looking for something else, appetite that so many, know, so many of us are plagued by in different areas. It might be food, it might be other material goods, but that insatiable, roving, never-to-be-satisfied appetite is meaningless. There's no point in it. Look at 7.6, chapter 7, verse 6. It says, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Dever notes in his overview study, her survey study of, of Ecclesiastes, he says the teacher is not afraid to stare right into the face of life's most difficult realities. Especially this last one in 8.10. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. He says the injustice of life is vanity. And it would probably not be difficult for us to say, yes, I would agree. If you've ever been on the receiving end of injustice, of something that wasn't fair, something where someone wronged you for their own good and didn't take into account anything that you were doing or had done, you would know, yes, I agree with you, teacher, that injustice of life is vanity. So much dreaming in many words, that in the insatiable roving appetite, the laughter of fools, and the injustice of life are the obvious things that are meaningless. So now let's move to our second category, the questionable things that are meaningless. These are the things that we may be a little bit slower to categorically condemn. These things we may, may agree with at first, maybe not, may need to think about it a little bit. So let's take a look at them. In 2, chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So according to the teacher, pleasure is meaningless. I would imagine to some degree there may be people in this room saying, uh, 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 I read Song of Solomon, and it too is wisdom literature, and it says pleasure is not bad if you're married, so I got you on that one. Fair enough. We'll continue to consider. Look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. The teacher feels it would help us in the way of wisdom to consider that this too is meaningless. 4.13 Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne in his own kingdom, and he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely... This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he's talking about here is popularity and public approval. Saying, man, just as soon as people welcome you and engage you, almost within moments it seems like they can turn on you. We can consider our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came into the town, praised and heralded, and just days later the same crowd who seemed to publicly approve are the same ones who crucified him. One commentator observes, the teacher's point is clear. The public is fickle, and their affection should not be overvalued or pursued. 
it finally, it finally is meaningless. One of my favorite poems is a poem titled If by Kipling. And in it, he emphasizes that which the teacher emphasizes. He says, If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. He's explaining what the teacher explains and that people should matter to you, but don't, don't let them matter too much. Don't, don't put the approval of people above the approval of God. A great book called When People Are Big and God Is Small is a wonderful tool as you consider this because ultimately it is meaningless. Finally, the third category is good things that are meaningless. These are the things that are going to be more difficult for us. These are many things that we would normally accept as good, yet for some reason, the teacher who is trying to impart wisdom to us, who has seen and had everything under the sun, labels these things vain. Look at 1110. 11.10. He says, Remove vexation from your heart, and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life, or some of your translations may say vigor, are vanity. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. He's saying that youth and vigor do not matter. And I think for those who are maybe a little bit further along in life, you may look at that and say, uh, I remember what it was like. Uh, when I wasn't this age, but I was earlier on in my age, and I could you know, run faster, and I could get more things done, and I, I don't know, I, I think maybe a little youth and vigor would be welcomed. I remember mocking the, wall, the, the mall walkers when I was a teenager. Um, I remember thinking, in fact, stating out loud, walking is not exercise, it is transportation. It gets you from one point to the next. I, and I remember saying out loud, man, I hope, I hope I never get to the point in life where walking is considered exercise. And it happened last Thanksgiving. <laughs> We'd finished our meal. I was like, oh, man, I'm miserable. I need to exercise. Who wants to go for a walk? And all of a sudden, I pictured myself as a, wall marker with a, a mall walker with the bright white shoes and my fanny pack and everything else. <laughs> if you're a mall walker, I love you. <laughs> Jesus does too. But we could look at that and say, youth and vigor are meaningless. Man, I, I mean, I watch my little two-year-old son, and he's just all over the place. He, there is no end to his energy. He goes to sleep with it. He wakes up with it. And I just think, man, I, I hope I can keep up with him sometimes. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it, it is a continual reminder of how I am getting old, and he has lots of energy. Look at 2, chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. This gives us a little more insight into the teacher and the kind of life that he lived and what he learned in the way of wisdom and how he hopes to impart it to us. But it says in 2, chapter 4, he says, I made great works 
I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. You see someone who, he goes to the car dealership and buys the dealership. I mean, he's the, he's the guy who, he, he denies himself nothing. And he said, I enjoyed it. All that hard work, I enjoyed it. Then he goes on to say, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it all, in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All that toil and all that, all that hard work can accomplish is ultimately meaningless and vain. Consider how this runs contrary, very contrary to our culture where most people spend most of their time working hard. So if we know that other parts of the Bible say hard work is a good thing, if you're a man or woman of good Christian character, you should be one of the hardest workers wherever you are. Give it your best. Work is for the Lord. But then he also says here, it's vanity. It's meaningless. So how are we going to find the balance between how we're to respond in wisdom? Apparently, these dynamics that are troubling us this morning also troubled the teacher. Look at his response in 2.17. Just a few verses down, he's just explained this dynamic of he's done so many things and he's built so many things and he's denied himself nothing. And then in 2.17 he says, so I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Consider what it would look like for someone to chase after the wind. I almost wanted to bring someone up here and stand them here and say, okay, the wind is right in front of you. Grab it. And then we could all laugh because it would look ridiculous. Striving after the wind, chasing after the wind just looks ridiculous. And he's saying everything. Everything, all of life, everything I've accomplished, striving after the wind. He goes on to explain this vanity in verses 18 through 23. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? I'm working my tail off, doing as much as I possibly can. And at some point, I'll die. And it's a total toss-up on if I'll be leaving this to a wise person who will continue it or a fool who will squander it. And he says, meaningless, I hated my life. I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person 
who has toiled with, wisdom, with his wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is a vanity. I remember hearing Matt Chandler talk about Ecclesiastes and he said it, at a certain point you just kind of feel like the guy needs a hug. I mean, this guy, he is, he is down. This guy just needs a hug, and, and I, I would agree with him. And this is the point in chapter 2 where I thought the same thing. Man, he's, he's looking at the future, and he's trying to exercise wisdom in the present. He's just saying, what is the point? If we were to go along, we would see in 5.10 that the love of money is meaningless. We would see in 1.17, in fact, that wisdom itself is meaningless. And turn with me to 7.15. The love of money Meaningless, 117, 215, wisdom is meaningless. And then look at 715. He says, in my life, in my vain life. Now he's not calling it his life, he's calling it his vain life. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? He's saying that his own life, I mean, we're getting down to what else is meaningless? His own life. And then it doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 11, verses 7 through 8. He says in 11.7, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Man, just for a moment there, he kind of hooked you. He's like, oh, light. He used the word light. And he said, enjoy. And all the days of darkness will last a long time. I mean, it, it, it really, um, at this point, um, he has proven that he truly believes everything under the sun is meaningless and vain and vapor. So why? We, we have to, come on, teacher, you are a downer. Why is everything meaningless? And look at, back at chapter 1. We've already looked at it once. And this is something we can't miss. In one eleven, he answers why everything is meaningless. If you're not encouraged at this point, it's okay. You're not supposed to be. It'll come. There is some light in the book of Ecclesiastes that we'll engage. Stick with me for a few more minutes and we'll get there. But look at chapter 1, verse 11, to figure out why is everything meaningless. He says, there's no remembrance of former things. Nor will, they be, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. He says, the reason that everything is meaningless is our terrible inability to remember anything. What that means is, well, one, one study shows that usually it's about four or five generations and you are completely forgotten after you die. Again, this is not the point where you should feel encouraged. Four or five generations gone, it's rare that you're remembered at all. Unless you did something significant, got written in a history book or some publication. But other than that, usually after four or five generations, you'll be completely forgotten. We could do a little experiment. I could ask you, how many of you know much about 
without the use of Ancestry.com or whatever, how many of you outside of that would know much, if anything, about your great, great, great grandparents? I could tell you a few facts about my great, great grandfather. I, I don't know anything beyond that. Everything is meaningless because ultimately it'll all be forgotten. We have an inability to remember anything. Look at 2 13. This is the real culprit behind that. Why can't we remember anything? Why is that the reality for us? And in 2.13, we find the answer to the real culprit behind meaninglessness. And it says in 2.13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Thank you! We're turning the, we're turning the corner there. That's encouraging. What does he say? The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, All will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. The real culprit behind meaninglessness is death. The real culprit behind meaninglessness is death. The reason we will ultimately not be able to remember much of anything is death. The issue is not that the teacher sees no value in wisdom. Wisdom is better than folly. It's just that fools and wise ones all die the same. At this point, you may be thinking, Scott, I I remember you mentioning something about encouragement. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. We've already read it, and we're going to read it again and make sure that we don't miss a particular detail. There's a detail in this verse on which every other detail in the book of Ecclesiastes hinges 114 says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Circle the phrase under the sun in your Bible. If you don't write in your Bible, this is when you start. Circle the phrase under the sun in your Bible. It is repeated 28 times in the book of Ecclesiastes almost just as many times as the word meaninglessness is used. Everything that we've mentioned this morning, if you review your long list of meaningless things, the obvious things, the difficult things, the, the, the things that we would call good, that long list, everything from, from um, injustice, everything from that to, um, to, what were the other things that we looked at? Everything from injustice to uh, youth and vigor, um, to pleasure, to popularity, to public approval. I want us to see this morning that all of that on your long list of meaninglessness is in fact truly meaningless if each of them is limited to that which is under the sun. Or to say it another way, to that which is temporary. Turn to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. I said we have to take into account other scripture to truly understand Ecclesiastes and to balance it out and to make sense of it. That phrase, under the sun, helps us to make sense of it because it's mentioned so many times 
and, it's, and it modifies so many comments that the teacher makes. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 15.58, we'll find something that sounds very different from what we've engaged in Ecclesiastes. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a difference. Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. We've already found that the real culprit behind meaninglessness is death. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ conquered death. I should have gotten like 50 amens right there. What we just saw there is the, the, this meaningless that just plagues you and the thing that drags you down. And what are we doing? The final culprit behind it is death. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ conquered death. I recently preached at my grandmother's funeral and I was able to say, very thankfully, Jesus Christ conquered my grandmother's death. And so her life wasn't meaningless. And her death, in fact, wasn't meaningless. Jesus conquered death, the thing that is ultimately the cause for meaningless for those things under the sun. This is why your life has significant meaning in Christ. The wisdom that Ecclesiastes offers us this morning is the wisdom of an eternal perspective. If you're taking notes, write the phrase eternal perspective. Because that's the wisdom that the teacher of Ecclesiastes offers us this morning. The wisdom of an eternal perspective. Christ intends to change your view of all things under the sun because in Christ you view them with an eternal perspective. This takes things that would be an otherwise meaningless waste of time and gives them meaning in light of eternity. Wisdom that doesn't take eternity into account is worthless, but true wisdom takes eternity into account, thereby giving deep Deep meaning to everything from work and toil to more difficult things like injustice and death. That's how pervasive it is. You take into account an eternal perspective and you will find that even the most difficult things we can face, injustice, death, sickness, loss, loss depression, um, heartache, you name it. Even in those things, for those who are in Christ who have an eternal perspective, you will find worth and meaning and value. As I mentioned earlier, you'll likely be forgotten within five generations. But in Christ, that doesn't mean you can't affect that future generation. Y'all considered that? You'll likely be forgotten. Your name may not be known, but the name of Jesus may very well be made known because of the way that you walked during your very, very temporary time in this life. That is a sweet reality. Who cares if they remember my name? Who cares if they lost my picture? But if they're following Jesus Christ... How remarkable of reality is that? You can affect the future generations because of an eternal perspective that you take right now in your very short, temporary, vapor-like life. That, in fact, is God's plan. According to Isaiah, according to Psalm 78, according to Deuteronomy 6, God's plan is that you tell the coming generations of the glorious deeds of the Lord. That's His plan. It doesn't matter that you might be forgotten, but you have a role that you can play, as Ben called it, we were talking yesterday on the phone, sort of a torchbearer, where that light keeps going on. You bear the torch in your temporary time, your very limited, small life, 
And it can affect those future generations to where they can know Jesus Christ as their Lord, Savior, and treasure. Indeed, tell the coming generations of the glorious deeds of the Lord. Quit talking so much about yourself and talk far more about him and what he's doing and how he moves and how he works and how he invades your current reality and how he changes things eternally. For moms, it is Mother's Day. Dad, you could benefit from this, but it's not Father's Day. It's Mother's Day. For moms, an eternal perspective is one that takes into consideration the very temporary nature of our earthly relationships. An eternal perspective is one that takes into consideration the temporary nature of our earthly relationships. In the book titled Trained in the Fear of God, which is a wonderful book, Timothy Paul Jones states, listen to this, if your children stand with you in eternity, it will not be as your sons and daughters, but as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. That is an eternal perspective. Maybe one of the most well-articulated eternal perspectives I've ever heard. I'm going to read it again. If your children stand with you in eternity, it will not be as your sons and daughters, but as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. That may terrify you. That may encourage you. That may confuse you. But it is true, and it should affect every one of us. We should take that into account. It is very difficult when I look at my two two-year-olds and my five-year-old and my eight-year-old to think of them as anything but my children who, if anyone touches them, I will kill you. This overprotective movement, this, this movement that is so focused on the temporary, it's like, oh my goodness, everything right now in our home is potty training. If we could get two little people out of diapers, we would get a raise, we could move and, and go on car rides that don't stink and that we don't have to stop, and, and it would be amazing. And that's so right here, it's so, that's what, I mean, I, I did a lot of things this week, the most Significant moment was when my son went potty in the potty. It's like, yes! But these are temporary things, and we need to remember that while they are indeed our sons and daughters right now, Brad's message last week, don't be anxious about them. Don't hold them so tightly that you distort what God intended in that temporary relationship. While we are to care for them right now, to raise them up in the fear and the discipline of the Lord, we, we have to lift our eyes past that horizon and see the eternal reality that exists. That if these little guys grow up and stand next to us in heaven, it'll be as our brothers and sisters in Christ. This, this also applies um, to your spouse. It applies to your spouse. The marriage relationship is a temporary relationship. If you stand with your, 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 your groom or your bride... In eternity, it will be as your brother and sister in Christ, not, not as the person you're married to. It's a, it's a temporary relationship. It's a very important relationship, probably the most important relationship on planet Earth because of how it represents what is supposed to be going on with God and the church. Do not neglect your marriage. In response to this, pay even more careful, close attention to it by having an eternal perspective, hoping that y'all will stand arm in arm in eternity. It applies to your spouse, it applies to your other family members, your co-workers, your neighbors, strangers. If they stand next to you in eternity, it will be as blood-bought brothers and sisters. 
So the question is, what will you do with that word if? If they stand next to you. Will that affect the conversations you have today at the lunch table with family members where you're celebrating Mother's Day? Will it affect the way you receive a stranger? Will it affect the way you engage your coworkers and the words that come out of your mouth? Your prayer life, are you lifting any of them up regularly? In closing, I'd like to share a few possible application points. Because rather than rendering all of our relationships and all of our jobs worthless, wisdom is what makes eternal sense of them. So I want to give some specific application and encouragement to moms today. First is don't neglect your children. But these temporary moments that are invaded by the eternal realities might look like this. As you fill their sippy cups with milk each morning, my daughter likes it normal milk, cold. My son needs chocolate milk that is heated for 35 seconds in the microwave. That moment of dealing with one who's high maintenance and one who's not. And that moment where you Try to clean the lids of the sippy cup out so that it's not disgusting from the day before. And you you fill the cups and you give them their milk in that moment. When the eternal perspective invades the temporary, in those moments you remember things like that if anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. As you give them their milk, you may consider where we've been in Hebrews, that the hope is one day that they would spiritually move from being milk drinkers to being meat eaters. As you put their little shoes on their little feet, remember that those feet were created to bring good news to the nations. As you help children resolve conflicts with one another, don't miss out in that moment on the opportunity to remind them of Christ's work on the cross to reconcile us to God, and that if he can reconcile us to God, he can certainly reconcile us to each other. As you take them from one extracurricular practice or rehearsal to another, remind them of 1 Timothy 4.8, that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Don't neglect godliness for bodily training, please. Because guess what the end of that verse in 1 Timothy 4.8 says? It says, while bodily training is of some value, it's not worthless, it's of some value. Godliness is a value in every way. Why? As it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That is an eternal perspective. Those are the biblical truths that help you from finding yourself in the midst of a terrible imbalance where you have neglected things that should have been non-negotiable and rather it helps you to walk in things together making sense of the now and making sense of the forever because of what Christ has done in conquering death and thereby conquering meaninglessness, giving you great meaning in your daily lives. We're about to take the supper. We take the supper every week. It could seem... You could ask, why do we take the supper every week? Is it too meaningless? And what I want us to see, turn to Luke chapter 22. Yeah, go ahead and turn there first, and then I'll explain what I hope we can see here as I read these verses. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Or actually, we'll start in verse 7. 22, 7 through, through 19. And here's what I want us to see this morning. 
I want us to see that this eternal perspective that God intends in Christ to invade all of the temporary moments is in fact the exact same thing that he did with the supper. I was reading through this last night and I was completely floored by it. What he wants to do with us in these temporary moments to show us eternal worth is the very same thing that he did with his disciples in regards to the supper. Look at Luke 22, verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, a temporary thing, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. The Passover that had been prepared thousands of times before. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He just blasted that temporary moment with something radically eternal. Jesus just said to his disciples, we're going to take this supper together, this supper that we've taken so many other times together, this Passover meal, we're going to share it together. But what I want you to do is lift up your eyes past what do you see right here and what's about to happen in the next few days. And I want you to know that the next time I take this meal, it'll be with you in eternity. Do you realize that goes for you too this morning? We're going to take the supper together. The next time Jesus takes it with us, will be in eternity. He absolutely invades this temporary moment with something that is remarkable and far beyond what is affecting just today. And he goes on to say, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. He said, this is my body. They've broken bread a number of times before. The Passover started back in Exodus. He broke bread. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He goes on to say, likewise the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God comes in, Jesus comes in, and he says, this temporary thing that you've been doing, I'm going to let you do it in an eternal way from here on out. And so this thing that we've been doing, um, maybe largely in remembrance, some in anticipation, I'm fulfilling it. This is my body. So the way you've always been doing it, we're going to change things tonight. Now you do it in remembrance of me. Now you do it in anticipation of my kingdom. So what he does there is the same thing that he does with everything else. He gives you eternal value in something that you didn't realize the eternal value in it before. As we distribute the elements... I want you, we'll have worship and song as we distribute the elements, but what I want you to do this morning is to quietly and prayerfully consider the temporary things in your life that need to be viewed eternally.
I want you to consider. Don't, don't just sit and listen. Don't zone out. Don't think about Mother's Day lunch. I want you to take some intentional time at the end of our morning here to consider what temporary things in your life do you need to apply the wisdom that has been shared to us from the teacher in Ecclesiastes? What temporary things do you need to begin viewing with an eternal perspective? Let's distribute the elements.